Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. February is here, and so are we. What is happening with the two of you? You know, just like seeing all these women in leadership do things like tearing it up on stripper poles and tearing up speeches, just living my best <laughs> life. How are y'all? It's been a big week to be it's a woman. It's been a full week. That's right. Man, <laughs> the news feed has been full. Well, Dave, when you, say, when you say it's, fe- it's funny you said it's February, because I was like, gosh, I associate February with like really miserable cold weather, and the, our, our listeners can't see you right now, but you're wearing a, a Christmas-themed flannel, because uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's chilly in a... Well, it's Christmas colors, is it not, Sarah? It's, Am I wrong? No, it is. It's just... Okay. It's a tartan. Um, it's a, it's just a regular old tartan. There's nothing Christmas. There's no green in it. But I'm glad that you're you're analyzing it from afar. You're, well, but I just say that because I'm I'm sitting in my office in West Palm Beach and it's 78 degrees outside, so and I'm like, nice. is it February? Cognitive dissonance is occurring yeah. in a beautiful way. You're wearing way right actual now. shorts, a short sleeve clerical shirt, which which I may am. be the 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 the, the um, lamest look on the planet. I think the, only if you put it with jeans. I yeah. appreciate your encouragement, and I receive your judgment, <laughs> and I I'm, it's good. I'm, I'm humility is part of my thing. Just so kidding. I appreciate you, you doing that You for look me. officious and holy and all sorts of RJ, uh, you know, like you were born to be at the beach, uh, you know, celebrating communion. Born I feel for like it, whenever Beach I see, communion. like if I ever wore a short sleeve, like I have like fitted feminine ones, but if I ever wore like what you have on, which I have seen women wear, they sell them for women. Um, I just feel like I would never be able to leave the Habitat for Humanity lot. You know what I mean? Like I'd just be there like, <laughs> one more house, people. Like we just keep going. So. But it's got pinstripes. It's got pinstripes. That doesn't it's a li- help. It's a li- mm-hmm. It doesn't help, really? No. You know, uh, Dave, your brother John used to say, when people wear white clergy shirts, he calls that his dentist look. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is perfect. That's why yeah. I do not own a white clergy shirt. That's so good. It's too much. Well, since you too don't much. really have uh, an assistant yet, I feel like it's our job to, you know, as it's always been, I guess, but to keep you humble and making sure that people realize... Bring me down you, a peg. You are a hu- human human being. <laughs> I am a and, human uh, person. Yes, a sinner, a sinner, in fact. That's right. Um, well, anyway, I guess I, f- I feel personally judged by the beautiful weather you're having. Uh, and I also, uh, Jennifer Weiner says that she feels personally judged by J-Lo's body. Yeah. We are recording this the week after the Super Bowl, and the Super Bowl made headlines, but the, the halftime show in which J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez, and Shakira put on a very salacious um, performance. I actually, you know, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it, so I, I So didn't wait, you're watch. calling it salacious without even seeing it? Well, I think I'm, little... I, I feel like I'm on pretty safe ground, uh, <laughs> given what I've read about it. Also, uh, does Dave not have Google? Like, every time we've talked about this this week, I haven't, he's like, I haven't seen it yet. I'm like, do you not own Google? I don't understand. <laughs> I just, I just, you know... I, I'm going to send you the link, Dave, and then I'm going to test you in a week. Okay. All right. I'll take it. You know, for me, halftime shows begin and end with Prince, and that's it. 
We don't need to. There, really there never oh, needs to be know, another man. another you halftime two, show. You two after nine eleven was incredible. Bruno Mars was an amazing performance. I, I don't know. They're both great. I I'm with you on that. But however, Prince was the pinnacle. However, they're not the Prince, yeah. yes. Prince yeah. wailing on guitar, doing Purple Rain as the rain comes down, and uh, with so much confidence in Minnesota. In Minnesota, yeah. it just doesn't. You, everyone should quit. You know why yeah. even try? It's over. It's <laughs> over. Yeah. Well, this is what Jennifer Weiner wrote. Uh, Sarah, you sent this our way. She said, "If there was one thing that sh- uh, we could all agree on, because people are very split on about whether or not it was appropriate viewing, um, um, it, or for especially for small children, it's uh, if there's one thing we could all agree on, it's that Jennifer Lopez looks amazing." At 50, she is a force of nature, a woman who looks so good, it's like evolution took a tiny step forward just for her. I can't believe she's 50 and looks so good, women said, which quickly became, I can't believe I'm 50 and I look so bad. Some members of my social community, uh, social media community were in awe. Others, myself included, were feeling personally judged. I'm just a few months younger than J-Lo, and with every birthday, I have asked, is this the year it ends? Surely there's a finish line, a point where the you-must-be-this-hot-in-order-to-participate sign at the amusement park ride just disappears, and we all get a seat on the roller coaster. I've always tried to tell myself that celebrity bodies are a little like art galleries. I can appreciate and be inspired by their beauty. I can acknowledge the time and money that went into their creation. When I finish looking, I can go home, secure in the knowledge that nobody expects my living room to look like that. Then I saw the meme that made the rounds on Monday. 50 years old in 1985, read one side with a shot of Blanche Devereaux of the Golden Girls in period-appropriate feathered hair and dowdy-looking sweater. 50 years old in 2020, read the other side with Jennifer Lopez in a silver bodysuit, toned thighs gripping the pole, honeyed locks streaming and bronzed skin gleaming, looking impossibly impossible. I mean, extensions though, right? I know, but it's many, many extensions. Like, come on. Yeah. Okay. The answer, I think, is to watch these types of performances like a man. Women watch a 15-minute show featuring elite entertainers and in some cases end up feeling bad about ourselves. Men, meanwhile, watch a three-hour game played by elite athletes with single-digit body fat, and most won't feel a single twinge of self-doubt or miss a single chip from the nacho platter. Women see inspiration or goals we failed to attain or a pretty stick to beat ourselves up with. We hear a voice sponsored by Weight Watchers or Revlon and Planet Fitness and Jenny Craig whispering, this can be yours if you just work hard enough. Men see entertainment, athletes who exist on a different plane than mere mortals. Their inner voice whispers, are there any more nachos? I don't even think it would occur to them to feel bad or to try to emulate what they saw. Now, again, I, I, as a man, you sort of think, if someone did the opposite of this and said, women say it and see, then think, oh my gosh, how can I take this personally? And men watch it and think, wow, it's just so beautiful and I'm aroused right now. I mean, these kind of, it seems pretty antithetical to the New York Times general tone to group men and women into these uh, unflattering categories. But uh, Sarah, you sent it our way. I think that what the reason it's, it's so trenchant is the amount of law that it that jennifer lopez somehow has has communicated here in terms of what a physical aspiration but sarah tell me what what you thought when you when you watch this 
I love the performance. I did have my kids in the room and I just, and like it did get a little dicey and be real. There's some crotch shots I was like not prepared for. So I said things like, isn't she a great dancer? <laughs> when that would happen <laughs> because I didn't know what else to say. Um, I loved the sort of homage to Puerto Rico and Latin culture and all that stuff. I There was a whole thing about kids in cages that was a political statement that I honestly didn't know was a political statement until later and was like, I don't know. It was, it, it was, a, it was a whole thing. Um, I don't generally watch these things and internalize what other women look like just because I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I probably do on some level, but I, Honestly, I think that's one of the rare gifts of ministry. And I've said that before on this show, but that like oftentimes what the world sees as like the greatest accomplishment, the greatest beauty, the greatest mass amount of wealth. When you're in ministry and you encounter people, not that I'm JLo's priest, but when you encounter people who kind of live in that realm, you know how much they give up to do that, to look that way and how much, um, and how lonely it is. Mercy for JLo. <laughs> I mean, I haven't watched the new, um, thing about Taylor Swift on Netflix, but I was talking to a friend about it and, and he, and he, there's some moment where she kind of reaches this very, you know, a great height of power, and she realized she doesn't have anybody to call. Yeah, it's a very, you know. It, I watched it. It's very powerful. She says, so, I, I have no one to share this with. It's it's hard. It's actually kind of hard for me to watch J-Lo. I mean, he's had all these public, you know, divorce and kids and all this, all this kind of complication and, and have deep envy. I mean, it was for me, I sent this today for two reasons. One was because it is striking to think about the expectations of what women in their fifties could look like in the eighties versus now. I mean, that's kind of very jarring. And it does remind me of these conversations we've had about like with each optimization, the stakes get higher, you know, um, which is really intense. And I think, I think I do feel that for sure. Um, but the other reason I sent it is because I was really taken aback by the way that she talked about men. I thought this was super dismissive. It's like, she's never heard you guys like wax poetic, uh, with great envy about Paul Rudd. You know what I mean? Like you may not look at football players and think this, but there are other men that are famous. I mean, to, to, to act like men are completely blind to envy, um, is to act as though like Bradley Cooper doesn't walk the planet. I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I'm kind of, I was fascinated by that. That's what but I, yeah. On that's... either end. I mean, like that women are that, like that we, that we are that sad. <laughs> I don't know that like we are like that we're that like unself-actualized. I don't know. I was totally with her until she got to there and I was like, no, this is, this kind of just fell apart for me actually. But it is different, right? Dad bod is a thing and mom bod is not a thing. And like guys are allowed to be distinguished gray and women are not. And, you know, there's a reason why it is harder and it's getting a little bit better, but it's harder for older actresses to find work in Hollywood than older men. And it is still a thing. And I do think that... Yeah, not that men completely escape feelings of envy or comparing or, or, or self-judgment or whatever it is, but it maybe just isn't quite as intense. You know, like I don't necessarily think to myself in the same way, you know, when I hear how old Brad Pitt is or Tom Cruise, or I'm not like, he's how old? 
you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, when you hear that Jennifer Aniston is 50 and Nicole Kidman is 53, you sure. know, and I know the judgment that, that my wife feels about, about that. But I also think your point is incredibly well taken about, you know, Jennifer Aniston's life seems to be kind of a disaster, you know, yeah. and, poor, and poor Nicole Kidman and poor Meg Ryan. Yeah. And like, would I really want that? And, uh, so I, I appreciate your mercy. I mean, it, I didn't realize the cage thing till later afterwards, and I watched oh, the show as well. I totally I that I went over like, my head. My like, gut reaction. I have no artistic nuance. Like I was my, just like, <laughs> yeah. My gut reaction was I found it sad that, as far as I could tell, the only person in that show who did any actual singing was J Lo's daughter. You know that J Lo and Shakira were clearly lip syncing the entire right. time, right, and I felt right, a right. little bit cheated. Right. And I'm like, can't you just? But look, sing honey, you can't time? have abs like that. And dance like around that, like that. I know. And, and sing. sing. Come know. on. You know it's what gotta, I mean? It's always I would smoke and mirrors. Than, unless, yeah. honestly, unless you're Prince, it's going to be smoke and mirrors. There, But talk about, you know, I think that you could, uh, musicians would watch Prince and think like, wait, that's the new standard I have to live up to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there is something. And Sarah, that's what I, what I, um, I loved what, um, the way that she is sort of echoing what Ada Calhoun uh, says in her new book about why we can't sleep and that the, mm-hmm. the, the, the judgments upon women and really upon everyone are just increasing to such extent that it's just – she says this – I think that level of pressure is unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And she sees it in being like women used to only be judged by sort of – you know, uh, maybe maybe their figure, but also the, the cleanliness of their house. But now it's 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 that as Everything. well as that. And for me, as a as a man, at least in a, a blue state enclave here in Virginia, I think I th- I think there has been some traveling in the opposite direction for men. In that, it it used to be men were just judged on their careers, but now it's also how fit they are and how well their kids are doing and, and how good of a husband they are. Yes. How, how present so are you? Both home. of these, and yeah. that's ig- ignored. And that's what this, that's why it's so strange to me that she, she can get away with making men seem like insensitive dolts when <laughs> I did, frankly, when I heard that Brad Pitt was however old he is, uh, and, and, you know, he's got his shirt off in the, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. And I thought to myself, how is, how is that even possible? Um, cause he basically looks the same as he did 25 years ago, which is not dissimilar from our dear friend RJ. And that may be why he has a hard time relating. Cause he just looks in the mirror and he's like, damn, how old am I? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, but actually, let me let me say something about that, Dave. And this is personal, you know. So I'm I'm in West Palm Beach. My family is still back in Houston, Texas, um, and it's going to be this way for a few months as as we're uh, kind of balancing. Um, you know, they're finishing out the school year, and I'm here, sure. and and there'll be some travel back and forth and all that sort of stuff. But what I've recognized being here and not having my family here means I can work just like twenty four seven, and um. And what I've realized is the psychic weight that it has been for me in my life as a husband and father, not necessarily just trying to divvy up the hours in the day, but the psychic weight of am I divvying them up correctly? Mm-hmm. You know, am I putting enough time into everything and just thinking and being stressed out about, am mm-hmm. I being a good enough employee? Am I being a good enough uh, husband? Am I being a good enough father? And the freedom that has come here, and it's not its not good necessarily mm-hmm. to just be totally focused on work, 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 you know? Um, so it is, inter- it's true. You, as you said that, I do carry that weight and, and being here 
and not um, having to do pick up and drop off and grocery shopping and taking out the garbage and all that sort of stuff that I, you know, do at home. Like y'all pray for Jamie. Seriously, seriously. (laughs) Um, No, I'm not. It's a lot. And God, my mother is my mother is coming into into town um, to help out. Thank God. It is a lot, um, Mm -hmm. but it is true, Dave, that the pressure to do everything well and do everything Mm -hmm. perfectly um, is is absolutely present. For, for me as a father, you know, but it, it and, and uh, just not to dismiss the very real, um, I kind of Olympian heights of the injunction that a person can represent if, if they look that good at that age and are that capable of something. And of course, as you say, they're not singing, there is smoke and mirrors involved in yes. that yes. performance. It's not, it's, it's inhuman and yet it's a spectacle. And that's what the Super Bowl is. I would remember I was at a, my first NFL game this year, took my son and watching those enormous men move that quickly. It's that different from a college game. You, you think to yourself, um, the price that these men pay absolutely in terms of their future vitality and their early deaths and things like that it's uh, it's all hidden from view uh in and in, in the moment it just makes us all kind of despair because you know you enter that stage and it's like well i'm still young enough i could probably be one of the people out there and then all of a sudden you're 40 and you're like no one's 40 on that field and uh no. i'm i'm way past but here you have j-lo is 50 and I don't when when she says this can be yours if you just work hard enough. Again, there's that word enough. Uh that that we are at a it feels like this inflection point of a pressure cooker where there's no mercy for anyone. Mm. Um it Blanche Devereaux. I mean, remember she was like she was like a, a hottie for she was, she was always... a hottie. <laughs> yes, she now, was. And all she had was catch. like some bedazzled sweaters and a southern accent, you know? Like <laughs> And just to make the connection very clear, there's been so much written about the culture of despair that we mm-hmm. find ourselves in, the deaths of despair, mm-hmm. the the suicide rate, the addiction rate. And I think you can draw a direct line between the uh, um, unrelenting pressure to be perfect in every area of life to the culture of despair. A hundred percent. Because you you um you know you you split. You you spend a part of your life projecting this image of perfection. And then you go home and you, you know, snort Vicodin, you yeah. know, or, or just get mad or, or go to bed for weeks at a time. Yeah. Um, and there's no allowance for the integration of the, of the person in the way that we, you know, there's no room for living in the light, as, as Jesus talks about, of being an integrated person who can bring your whole self, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and know that you are loved. And, and, um, and this is why church is important, because it's one of the only places in our culture where God willing— you know, unless you get into a uh, purity spiral, which we're going to talk about next, um, where you're going to hear that you are known, fully known, warts and all, and fully loved at mm-hmm. the same time. And that's what people need. Uh, and that's becoming less and less possible, it feels like, in the wider culture. And yet you do have, there's also this religious dynamic with celebrities where we, as she says, as she viewed them as like a... a as a little like art galleries, but it, 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 with sports especially, we we scapegoat, we 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 project all of our hopes and fears onto a single team or athlete or celebrity, and when they uh, if they are victorious, we feel vindicated, but we also feel condemned. And when they sort of make a mistake, we feel completely justified in um, you know crucifying them. So it's a uh, it, it's a 
fascinating uh, dynamic to watch play out and the amount of spiritual and emotional energy surrounding this halftime show, especially when Prince wasn't anywhere present. It was... uh, (laughs) He's moved on. Let's move into a different realm before we talk about purity spirals. Let's talk about middle school. You guys have a good middle, middle school experience? Um... No, who had a good middle school experience? The eighth grade, that movie from a few years ago was. Oh my gosh, so the movie was amazing. Yeah, yeah. we've talked about it a lot. This is from the, the, the Atlantic from Lydia, uh, Lydia Denworth, the outsized influence of your middle school friends. And what she's really trying to do is debunk the idea of peer pressure. That in fact, instead of peer pressure, we should think of it simply as peer presence. She d- d- Study after study shows that your, your adolescent brain is, not, is more sensitive to performance. And uh, when we talk about performancism, there's almost like a physiological component. She says, when 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 about watching uh, kids play video games with when their friends were in the room watching, adolescents regularly took more chances. Adults did not. With friends out of the room but nearby watching on a monitor but unable to communicate, adolescents still took more chances. In that situation, it wasn't possible for the friends to exert verbal peer pressure, but it didn't matter. When teenagers knew their friends could see their performance, it increased the amount of risk taking they engaged in compared to what they were when they were alone. Then they test it with mice. They say in the presence of other mice, adolescent mice drank more than they did when they were alone. And adults, in adults, there's no difference in the amount that they drank. There's something about the brain during adolescence in mammals that is hardwired to be especially sensitive to peer influence and to be more reward-seeking in the presence of peers. So instead of calling the phenomenon peer pressure, we should begin calling it peer presence. Of course, uh, a peer presence can be a force for good as well as bad. When teenagers are with each other, everything that feels good feels even better. Um, If what feels good is something that also carries some danger to it, then kids get into trouble because they're ignorant of the danger or choose to ignore it. But they've also shown that teenagers learn faster when they're with their peers than they do by themselves. And they engage in more exploratory behavior when they're with their peers. So who the peers are becomes very important. Parents shouldn't worry about peer pressure or peer influence. They should worry about who the peers are that their kids are hanging around with. When kids hang around with students who get better grades, their own grades go up over time. I had a really good friend as a child who became closer to me later, but... We kind of, she got very sportsy in middle school and I got very like, I don't like for my heart rate to be that high. And um, we we kind of weren't friends for a while and I made friends with this other group of people and there was a girl who was like kind of the, I have friends from high school now that listen to this podcast, so I'm like being careful about names. There's this girl we'll call Kim and uh, Kim grew up in a household with a single mom there was like a stepdad that was kind of in the picture, kind of not. Her dad had had drug issues, had taken his own life. Her mom had a giant tattoo of a crying Indian on her shoulder. I do remember that crying Native American. Uh, kind of a wild house. I mean, or tr- actually a truly wild house. It felt like there were just never parents there. And when they were there, they just wanted to be like older teenagers. And I remember my mom uh, showing up one day early to pick me up and (laughs) there was a guy standing at their front door. I mean, picture the most Mississippi version of this. Okay. There's a guy standing at the front door and he has on like the, like the jeans and the pants that are like slung really, really low. And he has on no shirt. He's just walking around like this. And my mom walks out to the door and he just goes, sup. And my mom was like, (laughs) Where is my daughter? (laughs) 
And I was never allowed to go over to her house ever again. And my mom was like, you can tell her. And this was like my key friend group, right? Like I'd really kind of bought into this friend group. She was like, you can tell her that I went over to her house and there's not an adult there and she can come over to ours, but you can't go over to hers. Like it was very clear. And, um, it was, um, it's still like hard to think about. Cause it was, I totally understand why my mom did it and it totally kept me safe. And yet it meant that for this young woman, um, there was kind of, a a real um, loss spoken over her. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like it was like one less person that could be in her life. And um, I don't know why this is making me cry. Um, She was just like a super hard worker and she was going to define herself against her family. And she got like amazing grades. And at some point in high school, there was a, there was a contest in 17 magazine and they'd fly you to you to New York. And it was like, you got a makeover and she won the contest. What? And it was like, she had had these kind of major things happen to her anyway, wasn't raised in the church or anything. And like, now we're friends as adults and she's like a member of the cathedral in Jackson and had her babies baptized there. And is like a Christian now. And like, she and I've talked about that a little bit. And how painful it was. And she said to me, you know, your mom did the right thing. But, like, it's it's hard for me to hear stuff like this because I understand as a mother the imperative to keep your child safe and help them make good decisions. And, oh, my gosh, like, I live in, like, ground zero for everyone being paranoid about who your kids are hanging out with. But also, like, what does that mean for those kids that don't have, you know what I mean? Like, it's just super sad that it's like, you're the kid that, like, and I remember there were whole groups of kids who just like, you weren't supposed to hang out with and their parents were never around. And I don't know, it's, it's a weird, do you know what I mean? Yeah. This very week, uh, there was a birthday party that uh, everyone in my, one of my son's teams, class, every neighborhood, everyone was invited to except for him. And, you know, he's a little younger than middle school, but you, he's going to remember that. Oh, and no. I, you wonder to yourself, oh, is he the one that they think is not a good influence or what's going on here? Uh, do I, should I need, am I, as a parent, need to say something? I mean, to some extent, you know, Sarah, you've, you've said before that it's like not a day goes by where we don't, as parents, especially mothers, uh, get told another way in which they're parenting wrong. Yeah. And I part of me feels that with this and yet also knows that um there are people are impressionable and kids are or I'm led to wonder about what about the the kids who are being uh vilified as the bad influences. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean we we talk about powerlessness a lot in our house and when we especially when we talk about kids or when we have powerless moments our kids certainly get in trouble and have powerless moments. Our kids have been left out of stuff. But when we talk about other kids, like we we talk about them as being like, like we talk about them in a merciful way. Like you don't villainize. Other, I don't know. This is just this is intense. I mean, I understand the research, but like as a Christian, it's like, but how do we teach our children not to just ostracize people because they've been marked as bad? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we there have been times in the past we've gone through this with our sons' peer groups when there have been, you know friends of theirs who have made bad choices or are going through things or are bad influences on each other and trying to work through that uh, in our own family and with other parents, you know, and to see how parents deal with that, you know, because there is such thing as the first use of the law, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if there are two, if there are two kids who clearly when they get together, 
bad things happen, then maybe mm -hmm. they need to take a little bit of a break from each other. But Sarah, as you were talking, you know, that's one of the reasons that we at Mockingbird and, and various denominations, Christians talk about things like the bondage of the will, mm -hmm. right? And there's perhaps no age group where that is more evident than puberty. Yeah. You know, that like seventh, eighth, ninth grade is sort of temporary hormone-induced insanity. Yeah. You know, and there's a reason why kids in that age group um, struggle, you know, maybe more than uh, with depression and anxiety. And I've told the story before of my now 17-year-old son saying to my grandma, as he's now out of puberty, being, saying to her, it's so nice not to be angry all the time mm -hmm. anymore. And just being able to recognize in himself that he had like a two-year period, a eh, year and a half, two, where he was just angry. Sure. You know, and he had no, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, he had no control over it. Also recognize that like, it's not forever, you know, that a big right. part of parenting is to be present yes. and to be patient yeah. and to not freak out and to think, oh, because they're doing this, you know, you, you need to deal with things. You know, you don't sweep them under the rug and you, you get your kids the help they need. But just because they're going through this at 13, 14, 15 doesn't mean this is a forever thing. Right. Like they are going to come out of it. Um, and, and there is a God in heaven and, and there's a, they have a divine parent who actually knows them and loves them more than you do and has a whole lot more control than you do and is able to be present when you're not. Right. Um, and, uh, and that's where yeah. faith as a parent is helpful. I think that there's, uh, I'm just saying in my own context, there's this like wild irony where, because everyone, I've, I've mentioned this situation to a few people in my community. They say, well, just wait, just wait till middle school. And like, People are not getting invited to this, that, or the other. And like you oh think God. at nine years old that the social norms still prevail and you just invite everyone. But um, I'm also in a situation where everyone uh, talks a lot about um, inclusivity as like the great virtue. <laughs> and yeah. and it, 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 it's they don't mean bad boys. It's when they very say that, painful by the way. Yeah. to watch the people who, to watch yeah. a community that says it believes in inclusivity yeah. in a global scale and in a racial yeah. and ethnic yeah. and sexuality yeah. uh, actually actively exclude your own child. <laughs> and yeah. You're like, well, yeah, there's some really fine print at the bottom of that contract that's like, but not wild boys. Not you know wild, what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you've written, <laughs> you've written about boys. it so so many times. Yeah. Uh, not yeah. if you're going to actually get in trouble. Well, we're gonna... Not if you're going to show up and like try to ride our dog and sing in a Mariah Carey voice. Like, well, no, course, you cannot come back, to the party. <laughs> it goes back to this false dichotomy between things you quote unquote choose and things you don't choose, mm -hmm. right? Like we can accept something if it's, if it's not chosen, but if it is chosen or, or it's, it's, uh, then we, then like, you better act, you better get your act together. Yeah. Right. You better shape up yeah. like to the degree that you can shape up, you should shape up. Um, but you know, wild boys sometimes just can't shape up. Sorry. No. And by the way, you know? I know that when, when, with like, as a, as a parent to wild boys, sometimes they, wild they, boys. they make such a fuss that you're just like, I give up. I don't care what other parents think we won't invite so-and-so, you know, it's just like, you're going to kill me or I'm just, I, I can't fight this battle anymore. So there's mercy for the parents who are, who are just trying to survive and get by and basically love their kid as best they can. But this, yes. this, this dynamic of, um, exclusion to the point of like damnation, um, 
that's not utter darkness. we're gonna get it let's let's get into that because it's it's very mild when it actually comes to even though it it marks and shapes a person deeply i guess when they're in seventh eighth grade i was like it's not mild for the people on the no, receiving end it's not mild but here Lord. we go this is what's um this is on the website unheard gavin haynes uh has put together a new radio documentary for bbc4 in england called the purity spiral and this is a, he wrote an article about this uh, sort of. I'm obsessed with this. This is unbelievably interesting. Uh, <laughs> called How Knitters Got Knotted in a Purity Spiral. And this is how, what he writes He says, In the past year, the middle class, middle aged, overwhelmingly female knitters of Instagram have descended into an internecine uh, conflict over racism allegations. Meanwhile, young adult fiction has exploded into an ethical gazumping war. He says that this is actually an age-old phenomenon known as a purity spiral. A purity spiral occurs when a community becomes fixated on implementing a single value that has no upper limit and no single agreed interpretation. The result is a moral feeding frenzy. But while a purity spiral often concerns morality, it is not about morality. It's about purity, a very different concept. Morality doesn't need to exist with reference to anything other than itself. Purity, on the other hand, is an inherently relative value. The game is always one of purer than thou. It is a social dynamic that plays out across that community, a process of moral outbidding, unchecked, which corrodes the group from within, rewarding those who put themselves at the extremes and punishing nuance and divergence relentlessly. A purity spiral propagates itself through loyalty tests that weed out its detractors long before they can band together. In that sense, once one takes hold, its momentum can be very difficult to halt. Now, at this point, we all sort of know what I, I hope you know what he's talking about, but he gets into the nitty gritty of something, a hashtag that appeared among um, <clears throat> the knitting Instagram community called hashtag diversity. Diversity. Job, Dave. <laughs> Did I say that right? Yeah. <clears throat> It was about sort of the lack of representation and, uh, you know, um, to get people from different backgrounds within the knitting community to talk. Um, and what happened is it began by people getting excited, but soon the list of uh, things that were considered problematic in the knitting community grew. Knitters who wished to be on the right side of history began to post pictures of the books they were reading. In January, a popular knitter from Nashville, Karen Templer, wrote a blog about her upcoming first ever trip to India, in which she suggested the experience would be, quote, like being offered a seat on a flight to Mars. Cue outrage at her racial Karen. insensitivity. <laughs> Karen. Hundreds of comments later, Templer issued a lengthy apology. <clears throat> Seeing what had happened to Templar in January last year, a Seattle wool dyer called Maria Tuskin decided she would take the smallest of stands. In passing, she announced on her vlog that she was taking a break from Instagram because of what she saw as online bullying in the knitting world. Well, if she had any lingering doubt about whether or not the bullying was real, the tsunami of denunciation that ensued probably cleared that up. Clearly, the spiral had entered its final phase. It was no longer enough to just stay out of it. Only positive affirmations of support, and only in the most correct tone and timbre, could save you now. Now, once it has gained momentum, the dynamics of a purity spiral are those of a leaderless cult. You hold a viewpoint that privileges an abstraction of the world over the messy reality. You have a sense of mission which sets you apart from the world, and you derive social status from being holier than the next acolyte. 
So when somebody comes calling from, quote, reality land with a list of questions, the mere fact of having their viewpoint interrogated represents an existential threat to the sacred viewpoint. They circle the wagons. Now, Haynes writes, Having been an unhappy tourist inside a couple of purity spirals for many months, my sense is that the phenomenon isn't going anywhere. These are deep psychological truths about humanity carved into the cliff face of how we construct our societies. The problem is that we tend to see the dynamic for what it is only in its aftermath. The internet is such a terrifying place. (laughs) Oh, boy. I mean, I just, uh, I resonated with so much of this, and I'm not a knitter. But I resonated with the idea that it's just one misstep. And then you go to secular hell, right? Mm. It's really hard to get out of secular hell. And the, the funny thing is that I wish I could say in church circles that, um, that that's not the same thing. But it actually is, is worse. I think there's secular hell and then there's like, then there's like secular church hell. <laughs> And that's actually even lower um, because so many Christians don't really work with a, especially especially Christians who are like woke Christians don't really work with a system of forgiveness and mercy. Not, I mean, that's a broad generalization. And I want to be careful. They, and I'm woke they in qualify a lot of ways. It. They qualify it in a yeah, lot of different ways. Yeah, they qualify. It's like, well, we'll forgive, but you have, you know, this and this. And then if you do that or that, they're like, well, that wasn't quite enough. We still don't feel good about you. Um, the good news is Jesus always feels good about you. But um, I... I mean, this is why, like, it's terrifying to put stuff up on the internet because you you really you really are at the mercy of like of like people's I don't know perceived self righteousness. I don't know like a, like childhood issues they haven't dealt with. Like I don't know. Like you're really at the mercy, kind of the worst parts of people because. What happens in these spheres that's so fascinating is like we treat each other in a way that we would never treat each other in person. We treat strangers in a way that we would never treat strangers in person. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's really disheartening. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just found this. Uh, what a helpful phrase. What a helpful image. Because when you explain it, everyone knows what you're um, talking about. Uh, and, and of course, you know, I mean, they say it's not morality, but it, but it is, you know, it's it's the law to the nth the degree that you can never possibly um, live up to. And yeah, I, I was just thinking, you know, again, um, I'm not, we actually have a little, we have a knitting circle that meets every Wednesday at noon outside my office in a little parlor space, which is a wonderful group of ladies who um, pray and and um, knit and and kind of um, get along and and who actually represent a, a broad swath of our community in a really mm-hmm. lovely way and it's happening mm-hmm. it's just happening because we're church mm-hmm. and not because someone is like you know diversity or whatever right, <laughs> you know right. no no hashtag required um, but I did think you know clearly churches um, religious movements have become. Uh, um, spot what are they called uh, purity spirals, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and it also reminded me. I, I just was reading up on American Dirt, that novel, where there's been the huge and it's oh exact same thing. Yeah, they yeah, call yeah. it the what the circular firing sc- squad, oh same sort of word. thing, you know, like we where we all we just start, stand in a circle and, and kill each other with our with our purity, and so that's the same sort of image, right? But I was thinking, what so what is what is Christianity? What is what is the hope that the church would be as opposed to that? And of course, it's that it would be a forgiveness spiral. 
mm. or or a humility spiral, a truth telling spiral, a grace spiral, Which I something like cry. no, but right, yeah, um, and, no, I and love that, that yeah, that yes, we would call I this totally, out and, yes. and call everyone's uh, need to feel like they're doing everything perfectly and say give it up because. You know, Jesus yes. takes the purity spiral and nails it to the cross and is like, yep, we're done. We're done with that. You can play that game if you want to, but it's just going to kill you and you're going to kill other people. And you're going to kill me. And you're going to, and you're going to kill me. Exactly. You did kill me. And I've already um, died once. It's, that's right. You, you no, no more death required. No more, no more sacrifice required. Well, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that loves, um, judgment and I love, I mean, I've told you on this show before that, um, like my husband will come home and be like, he, and he tells me very little cause he knows I'm like this. He'll come home and be like, well, so-and-so did such and such, you know? And I'll be like, I told you so-and-so was a good for nothing. You know, like <laughs> immediately. I always knew it from the moment I met him. What I have experienced though, with some, I don't know if we'll call it Christian maturity or just being worn down to the bone is, um, that when I have you know, if I know these things or I've, I've, or I've had rough experiences with people at church, which I certainly have as a priest and especially, I'll be frank, sometimes as a priest's wife, there is a part of me that for years would just be like that I would, I would compartmentalize them to my own Sarah's secular hell, which is even worse than church secular hell and secular hell. <laughs> and you're never, never coming back. Yeah. And you're never, you're never That's coming it. back you're from done. that. Grudge. Yep. You made a list. I lit it on fire and ran it over. You know, I mean, it's like <laughs> I've scooped up the ashes and I'm, you know, anyway. Um, and I have not, I don't know what God has done to me. He's just broken that ability. And what has happened is that I have then let those people back in, or I have, you know, kind of gotten really mad for five minutes and then been like, well, what, what happens if I just kind of let go of this? And then you get around these people and you realize they don't have malice in their heart. They're just doing the best they can. They're wayward fifth graders. You know what I mean? Like bondage they're, of and, the will. And yes, and that 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 you you actually can like love them and be in a relationship and care about them and take them out for coffee now. And isn't that an incredible? I mean, it is. You know, if you want to be like the wokest, most like countercultural Christian, forgive people. I mean, like try yes. it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, that you'll note that one of the things that I forgot to read about, but the the the, the man who started uh, diversity, and he's like HIV positive. He's one of the few yeah. men in this whole thing. Um, eventually, the purity spiral has come back and like executed him, like because he mm -hmm. said we should all take a little bit of a chill pill. And it's this Robespierre, you know, um, in the French Revolution, how the person that starts at the purity spiral, uh, they end up reaping what they sow a little bit. But I also, but I thought it was really, really perceptive when he describes it as a leaderless cult, mm -hmm. um, a leaderless cult that doesn't have an end point to its, um, you know, it's abstraction. There's no it's upper led limit. By the devil. And yet, it's what? The devil. It's led by the devil. The devil is the leader. It is. I think there is something, frankly, a little demonic about this stuff yeah. because a lot of it begins, what we're seeing and what this article is really about is that for most of, at least when I was growing up, purity spirals were a thing on the right. And they were a thing in sort of conservative religious circles and, you know, polygamous things and and who is who is the most pure in their faith and the church of one and now we're seeing it it's like just it's it's becoming more and more 
characteristic or definitive almost of of the left. And it's so much easier to screw up, it feels like. Do you know what I mean? Like, when it's, it's, it's on the right, you're like, okay, don't have sex before marriage. Got it. Wear a long skirt. I'm on board. Grab my hair out. I can do that. You know what I mean? But when it's on the left, yeah. you're like, wait, I should just not talk. Yeah, just, this is going to go south really quickly. And that's, but that's what you have. You have like a, a in, in the right, at least you had a, the, there was a theoretical leader who was yeah. Jesus of Nazareth. And he was at yeah. least, he was in lip service, if nothing else here. Even if it was poorly interpreted, it was rules. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was still though, that there's something called redemption. And here there's, right. there's nothing like that. In fact, there's, there's just no punishment and it, it, I, needles to the heart. I really don't think, as he says, that this isn't going anywhere. And yet I also have some hope that um, I, you do see, uh, what, what is it? Remember when we read the cancel culture article and the, the woman who had gotten canceled said, I hope in the future everyone will be canceled for 15 minutes. Yeah. And that's, yes. um, that's a hope because everyone, but even today, you know, if you even, if you even utter like defense of the sort of, of the maligned, you're accused of what's called both sidesism. Have you heard this now? And you think to myself, we just have no imagination whatsoever anymore because everything has to line up directly on one side. Um, and then the final thing is that we've had such an outcry about quote unquote purity culture within Christian, the nineties evangelicalism, and it was a real thing and it did a lot of damage. But so many of those folks have just traded one purity spiral for another one. And it's, that's the, that's, they've convert, they, their religion is the same. There's still no grace involved. And you, you, the people that are a lot of times behind some of these purity spirals are the people that hate, uh, they've, they've come from some purity spiral on the other end. And it's just trading one sort of seculosity for another. The, let's go from the cults with, without leaders to, um, the, the leader of our particular, uh, and I won't even call it cult, but, um, our, uh, way of thinking and way of believing Jesus is a Jew. David Brooks, not other New York times, David Brooks wrote an article for comment magazine called Jesus is a Jew, which was really sort of a very surprising overview of historical Jesus research. And I'm going to read some of it because, you know, it, it's not just a rehashing of N.T. Wright or something, there's, there's, or Bart Ehrman. It's, it's, it's something fresh, or it's, at least it's tinged with his uh, way of expressing himself when it comes to Jesus, which I've always found interesting. He says, the adult Jesus seems at first in league with other great Jewish teachers of the first century. He preserves the core of Judaism. His great commandment that you, uh, that you shall love your God with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself comes straight out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But ultimately, Jesus stands apart from these figures. Jesus is not presenting himself as just another kind and learned rabbi. There's a story he tells about his own person that is different, more powerful and bizarre. He doesn't fit into any group in the culture wars of his day. He sometimes offends the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but other times wins them over. He is uncategorizable. He transcends the fractious din. He's somehow playing a different game. He is taking all the traditional categories of Jewish thought and somehow seeing them differently from a different vantage point and fusing them together in new ways. He is at once a product of his time, but he's also offering a new paradigm, sparking a new gospel, and so is standing beyond his time. For example, all Jews speak of Abba, the father, but when other Jewish groups do it, it sounds like a communal father, the founder and Lord of our people. When Jesus speaks of the father, it feels different. There's a direct mystical intensity to it. My own father, as Amy Jill Levine, a Jewish scholar, puts it, when Jesus talks to Abba in Gethsemane, his address is entirely personal. He is not speaking on behalf of anyone but himself. 
the category Abba is transformed. Similarly, and this relates to what we've just spoken about, all Jews speak of purity and sanctification. For other Jews, it was the tangible purity in the here and now and acted physically on the outside. Jesus tends to speak from a purity that happens within. There is nothing outside a person entering in that can defile one, but what comes out from a person defiles the person is Mark 7, 15. But when we tell the story of the miracle at Cana, the turning water into wine, we always focus our attention on the wine, but in the Jewish context, the water may have been more important, may have been the more important element, uh, author Bruce Chilton argues. The waters Jesus transformed were waters of purification. By turning them into wine and having people consume them during the festivities, Jesus was demonstrating that purity could happen from the inside. The category of purity is also transformed. Chilton describes the contradictions of Jesus admirably in his book, Rabbi Jesus. What a weird combination he was, he writes. Both humble and proud, overflowing with compassion, but adamant in his assertions of the terrible judgment of God. He seemed lost at times, the direction of his life unclear, but then he could turn around and flaunt his prophetic conviction. His certainties could be frightening. Brooks concludes by saying, Jesus is amid the muck and armed with the word, and yet emerges as a figure ultimately alone, a vortex of spiritual forces converging in one person, no one else quite like him. Always fun to read about Jesus from a from a slightly uh, out, outside perspective, and I think Brooks doesn't really disappoint here. It may not be the exact Jesus we recognize, but there is a a, a recognition of the discontinuity of Jesus that is uh, not very fashionable because people get you know second world post World War II, but uh, he is not like the or he is like the others. But what's interesting about him, what's much more captivating about him, is how he's different from his context, mm-hmm. how he tra- stands outside of his time, how he continues to bring people back year after year as, as they grow older and as, as time gro- moves on. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this article, but also on Jesus and his uh, unique uh, character. Well, I, it made me think as you were talking and I was reading what um, I think N.T. Wright said, you know, that, that Jesus, in, if we're going to understand Jesus, he both has to be um, uh, sort of continuous with what came before, right, consistent and sort of a continuation, and yet also crucifiable. Um, and I, I was encouraged by, uh, as Brooks was talking about, all these people, uh, and, and a lot of you know Jewish scholars, rabbis, who um, felt some kinship with Jesus and, and were sort of trying to claim some of him um, as their own. And I think that's, you know, Jesus is probably the most interesting person who has ever lived, you know? Um, they're certainly the most talked about, the most famous. Um, and especially when you look at what he actually did on the earth, which is not that much, you know, and in a very short amount of time, the fact that we're talking about him 2,000 years later is is a miracle, and I think it's an explainable miracle. And at the same time, and this is a ca- this is a caution to myself as well, that whenever we seek to sort of claim Jesus for our own, we need to remember that had we been in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we would have been um, at best denying him and at worst uh, yelling, crucify him, crucify him, you know, that, that he, um, he had no friends. He died alone, you know, having insults heaped upon him. And so we need to, there is a little bit of, a, we can't get too cozy with him. And then at the same time, when we do get cozy on him, as they say, he, he, he's always like, what about you? What about you? What about you? He makes it um, personal, and he's a deeply, um, ch- you know, accepting, forgiving, but also challenging person, a, a, a person who demands that we kind of fall to our knees 
and ask for mercy in order to um, receive it. That if we're looking to enlist him in our cause or have him uphold our own uh, our, our our agenda, uh, that's not going to go so well. <laughs> you know, um, he's he's un um, unrestrainable and he he won't be put in a box. So again, I I love that he's looking for points of of connection. And also deeply aware that um, we killed him. You know, when he showed, when he actually showed up in the flesh, um, he we killed him, all of us. So those are my thoughts. I I love that. I mean, I I actually keep thinking about that quote. I think I'm preaching it this Sunday, actually, but um, it's from from your dad, from Paul. That uh, grace is the victory of the absurd over the obvious. Mm. Um, and I think. You know, one thing that we don't talk enough about, especially in mainline Protestantism, is healing as like a very different thing in Christianity from other religions. I think a lot of, and when I say other religions, I kind of just mean like secular religion, which is its own thing. Um, but like that, that people are are think that they are kind of given a vision for what things are going to look like. And they just have to like, you know, ask the universe for what they need or I've got a plan. Um, I've they got just a plan. need to like self-actualize enough or get enough therapy. And we know I love therapy, but all these things, when it is this like thing that has to come from the outside, that is this healing that has to come from the outside. And I think that makes us very different. And I think when we, I think when we are reflective enough, um, or maybe not. I mean, I, I think there are moments in my life where I've been reflective enough where I can be like, oh, like, I uh, don't put people in secular Sarah hell as much as I used to. Um, uh, that's kind of incredible. And then we, some of us have really powerful moments of healing as well in our lives. And I think that is a remarkably different thing about Christianity. The other thing, though, that is so important to me is that there's something that catches us. And that's very different from any other religion in that we are given the law. We are held to the law. The law is not lessened. In fact, the, the law is heightened. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there is this thing that catches us. And, and I think that I think that function is there, right, RJ? I think you're totally right. Like we're driven to our knees. But I think people hear that and think, oh, my gosh, like this, <laughs> this Jesus guy is really needy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he's going to have these people like ask for forgiveness. But that's the, the thing is, like, we're all so angry and lonely and isolated that we need that, like, that we carry these burdens and we need a place to say, please take this th- this from me. Please, please meet me on my knees in this pew and take this from me um, because I can't meet the standards of the world. Like, right, like, I'm, I can't be J-Lo. And also, like, um, I definitely thought about stabbing somebody, you know, this morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... I I can't meet any of these laws, and so I need you to meet me. Mm. Um, and I think the intimacy of that, and I love that what RJ, what you said that Jesus constantly like looks at us and is like, "But what about you? But what about you?" That it is so deeply personal, and I think that's why I get sad for my Christian brothers and sisters in their own version of these purity circles, where where the relationship with Jesus, the personal relationship with Jesus, is so bound up in what you've done. Mm and who you define yourself to be, that they miss that none of it matters. 
that like the grace of God is so absurd that none of it actually matters, that it's going to meet you and find you and seek you out no matter what. Um, and I worry for them sometimes, and I'm trying not to say that in a self-righteous way, but I worry for them sometimes that the noise of their lives is so bound up in the doing that they forget or they can't even hear the the healing, mm. you know? I just keep thinking of Jesus who descended into uh, secular Sarah hell. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to be the title and of the episode. And he took everybody out. He was like, all right, I'm rounding you up. And then you his, don't belong here anymore. We're trying to make Sarah a little more pleasant to be yeah, around. No, that is yeah. his last offensive act. He decides to round up Sarah as well, the one who'd actually put them there. Yeah, exactly. He's like, look, we're closing up shop. I know you like to run this place. But like, Come on. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness! No, he he sort of found himself at the at the center of a purity spiral, that um, he's he's almost like uh, absorbs is almost is one way to put it because you know the 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 the, uh, the lectionary for this weekend is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and it really does get Jesus came not to you know to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And, you know, mm -hmm. and then he goes on to tighten every single aspect of it in mm -hmm. frightening ways that yeah. are almost, he has this tremendous respect for the Mosaic law and not only respect, he's willing to, to, to aim it on the inside of people. He goes beyond mm -hmm. the outer person and he's interested in the heart and the motivation, the really where this, the scary uh, parts of our life are. And yet, then, then he says, "I'm I'm not here to abolish, but to fulfill." And you have what's impossible with with man is possible with God, and the the words that are coming out of his mouth end up being end up being almost ironically descriptive of him. I, I think it's it's a beautiful thing because he also says to love your enemies in that very same passage. Yeah, like, shoot. How do, do you, that means I have to love the people that thought J Lo's thing was 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 amazing, right. and I have to love the people that yes. thought it was uh, pornography. I have to love both. Yeah. I, I don't want it. I I have to I have to be I have to know where I stand. You know. Yeah. Um, but you can only do that again. It's you can only do that when you recognize that you are the enemy who has been loved, right? That you are God's enemy who has been loved. And then maybe you can love someone else who's been. So it, it is this weird thing where you are convicted and leveled by the law, and then suddenly, as the as as you become poor in spirit, as you mourn over your fallen state, and then you you hunger and thirst for a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself that you couldn't that can only be a gift. Mm. You begin by the grace of God, and hopefully you don't know it because then you become very self righteous. Uh, begin to um, bear some of the fruit of the spirit, right? That's the hope. That's the hope, Sarah. What you're you're Twitter painting as me. I um I love when people ask me official church questions because I never know the right answer. And somebody this week like texted me and a whole lot of people who are like way smarter than me and was like, So what is the official like Anglican stance on when the beginning of the church happened? And people who like, cares? <laughs> I didn't say that, but it was typically. But people listed off like all these different, you know, acts, like whatever. I don't know all this stuff, all these like official things. And I was like, it's obviously the woman at the well, right? That's the beginning of the church to me because he offers her living water. And then what does she turn to all these people, all of these people who've never heard of Jesus and say, she turns to her people and she says, you have to meet this guy who's told me everything I've ever done. Mm. You know, that's it. 
It's not the right answer, by the way. Don't say that. But that's Sarah's answer. Let's stop. Uh, we should <laughs> let's stop there. That's a that's a it's a mic drop J Lo moment if I've ever heard one. Um, thank you guys for being on the cast this week. Uh, Thanks. Absolutely, always fun. It was fun. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise